Welcome to the Sermon Cast for Concord Presbyterian Church, Sunday, February 14th. This morning's psalm is Psalm 89, verses 1 through 5. I will sing of the Lord's loyal love forever. I will proclaim your faithfulness with my own mouth from one generation to the next. That's why I say God's loyal love is rightly built forever. You establish your faithfulness in heaven. You said, I made a covenant with my chosen one. I promised my servant David. I will establish your offspring forever. I will build up your throne from one generation to the next. Heaven thanks you for your wondrous acts, Lord, for your faithfulness too in the assembly of the holy ones. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Psalm 89 is a cry for help. Whoa. <laughs> it's a cry for help from the people of Israel. It's a cry out to their God who had never to this point, they think, abandoned them. And yet this day they felt abandoned. Now this psalm doesn't appear like it's a cry for help from the beginning. The words are not obvious words of help no one's saying, help me, I feel abandoned. Help me, I feel alone. Help me, I feel desperate. These are happy words we hear. God is God. God is on the throne. God promised us new things. They're happy words. And so it takes a little work to discover this cry for help. It takes a little bit more reading. We didn't read it this morning. But if you continue reading in Psalm 89, we begin to hear the story of a people who are broken, a people who are in need of salvation, a people who feel lost, who feel like this is the one time in their life that God abandoned them. Where are your promises, God, they come to say. 
You said David would last forever, and yet here we are in the midst of this time. Now, one of the big beliefs of Presbyterians is the idea that we read the Bible in historical context. The Bible is from a peoples who lived in a time and a place and had experiences and feelings that existed in history, and it's important for us to know who these people were. Historical context is important. Psalm 89 is a royal psalm. It deals with the line and experience of the kings who followed David. It was probably not written by David because it was written much later after his life. But it is seen as one of the royal psalms that deals with David because it's all about the promise God made to David. God promised David that he would be on the throne forever, that a member of his family would always be king in Israel. And this day, when this psalm was written, that truth, that promise was broken. You see, Israel had fallen to the kingdom of Babylon. Israel's king was no longer on the throne. All of the people were being carted away over the desert to Babylon, and they didn't know, they didn't understand, they couldn't see how is this a continuation of the promise of God. David's line has been broken. There is no king in Israel. And so the words they say, they're lovely, but they're a lie. Well, they're not a lie. There's some truth in them. They're just not the truth of what they're experiencing in that time. They don't reflect the lived experience of the people of God. They don't reflect the experience of the people who are writing them. I can't imagine that as they were walking across the desert, the first words that came to mind were, God is so good. God's love lasts forever. There is a divide in this psalm between what the people say and what they feel, between the words that are coming out of their mouths and the words that are spoken in their hearts. The words may say, when God is awesome, God will provide, but their experience says, God has abandoned us, God has forsaken us. And so what do we do with these words that are so at tension with what they're experiencing? Robert Davidson puts it this way. The celebration of God's steadfast love and faithfulness simply underlines the bleakness of their time. In the darkness of tragedy, does remembered faith bring a basis of hope? Or does it merely lead to despair? This psalm is a psalm about remembered faith. It's a psalm about a time when they felt the truth of God's promise. It's about a time when they borrowed the faith of their ancestors. So maybe they weren't feeling all that faithful that day. Maybe they weren't feeling the truth of the promise of God that day. Maybe they were feeling a little bit more like that truth had always been maybe a lie. It's a borrowed faith. And a friend in seminary whose name was Connie, she was what they now call a late-in-life seminarian or um, a second-career pastor. She'd had a long career as a, I don't know how long, she'd had a career as a lawyer, a high-powered lawyer. She was the assistant district attorney for Las Vegas for a little while. She knew what she was doing. She was one of those people who came to class and you knew she got it. 
She had a sense of calling that was so clear and so purposeful. And I was always a little jealous of Connie's certainty. Our second year of seminary, she was in her mid-40s, and her husband suddenly died. It was one of those freak accidents where he was running and had a heart attack. Nobody was home. She had two young sons, one of whom had special needs, cerebral palsy, who couldn't walk on his own and needed lifted into the car to go anywhere, and she was now alone. I remember very distinctly one day she um, had picked up the bad habit of smoking and we were sitting at a restaurant outside at the table and she said, I, you know, I asked her um, you know, how she was coping and she said, well, I've decided to give up smoking and I asked her why and she said, well, the thing about being the surviving parent is that you have to survive. She went to church. She went to church and she cried all the time. She said she apologized to her pastor because all she did was go into his office and cry. She would come to school and be strong and steadfast as she always was. If you didn't know her, you wouldn't know anything was going on. One morning in class, we were talking about the, the, you know, the theology of Christ and who Christ is. And she looked at me and she said, I'm going to borrow your faith today. I didn't know you could do that. I didn't know it was something you could lend out like a library book, but that's what she said. She said, I'm going to borrow your faith today. And it became our code word. Whenever she became too overwhelmed by whatever life was throwing at her that day, whenever she felt disconnected from the words she spoke in class, she would turn and she would say, I'm borrowing your faith today. I hear something about borrowed faith sometimes from people who are experiencing loss or a long-term illness, they'll say, I know I have a lot to overcome. I know there's a lot I have to go through, a lot of treatments, a lot of things that I have to experience, and yet I know God is good. And there's always a part of me that says, how can you think that in the face of all of this? And all of these hurdles that you're gonna to have to overcome, how can you still say God is good? And that's when I remembered Connie. It's a borrowed faith, sometimes. They're saying, I know God is good. I may not feel God is good today. I may not feel it deep in my bones, but I remember a time when I knew God was good. I remember the way that my mother would sit me at the table and tell me God is good. It's a remembered faith. This morning's hymn, Lift Every Voice and Sing, was written by the Johnson brothers, James Weldon and Rosamond, which is a name we need to bring back, I think. And it was intended to be a song in honor of Abraham Lincoln's birthday. It was written in 1900. And it was written in the midst of a series of humiliating conditions of Jim Crow. These men, these boys, had grown up in this experience of overwhelming hurdles, of a life where they were afraid. And yet they wrote these words, lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven ring with the harmonies of liberty. They had no promise of liberty. They didn't experience liberty in their life, but they borrowed the faith. They trusted the faith. 
Maya Angelou would tell later on in her life a story of how when she was a child, the residents of her hometown of Stamps, Arkansas, would cry when we'd sing this song. They would think about the promise of opportunities that would come their way for their children, the moments they had of hope. It's a song which speaks of a borrowed hope, a borrowed faith, one that shines against the experience of the darkness that they lived and the overwhelming despair of their lives. Now for me, when it works, when the church is best lifting out its calling to be the people of God, when it shows love and compassion, it's the best place to borrow faith. There's a myth in, our, in church world, in church life, that everybody at church has got life together. I remember when I was a kid, I always thought, I would look up to the adults in my church and think, man, they really got their lives together. They know what's going on, right? They really believe this stuff. I remember when I was eight at one point looking at my mother and being like, man, she really believes this stuff, <laughs> right? And it struck me that when we go to church, that's the place where we can go to be a little broken, where we can go to borrow faith when we need it. When we go to church, we step into a sanctuary or we join with others online. We step into a flow of history. And it reminds us that our faith, our journey, our experiences is part of a long tradition, an ancient tradition of faith and truth. Notre Dame in Paris and the Lincoln Cathedral in England took 100 years to build over 600 years ago. The Cologne Cathedral took 600 years itself to finish, and they're still working on it. And when you step into those buildings, you know that you are part of a stream of people, a stream of faith which has lasted centuries and millennium. And family of God, that church does not need your faith to prop it up. It just needs you. Some days you're not going to feel it. Some days you're going to walk into the sanctuary or walk into a Bible study or walk into your life and not feel it. Not feel whatever it is you think you're supposed to feel, and that's okay, because sometimes we can borrow that faith from others. We come to church and we experience rituals like baptism and communion and marriages and funerals, and all of those remind us that we are named and claimed by God. That we're part of a community of faith. They give us words to describe ourselves. They give us places to go. They give us shared memories. And so on the days when we don't feel like we're a baptized child of God, we can remember that people stand at that font. And they get water on their heads. And they hear the same words that people have heard for over 2,000 years. You are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. You don't get a choice of whether you grow up in that faith. You don't get a choice whether you're claimed by God. We put that water on you as a baby to say, guess what? You're in this family, whether you like it or not, whether you feel like it or not, whether your faith is strong enough or not, you are in this family. It means you're allowed to be weak. You're allowed to fail. You're allowed to say, I can't do it today. I can't feel it today. I'm going to borrow your faith. 
We are all people who stumble. We're all people who fall. We are all overwhelmed at times with doubts and fears and anxieties and feeling not good enough. And sometimes we just need to turn to other people and say, you pray for me. Say the words I can't say. And then maybe one day those people will turn to you and ask you to take your turn. All of us borrow faith. All of us have times when we need someone else to walk the faith and talk the talk and walk the walk for us. And what better place is that? What better place in the world is that than church? So you may not be feeling it today. The words may ring hollow to you. They may not speak truth to you. And that's okay. You can borrow my faith for a little while until you find your own again. Amen. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our